Hi everyone, I'm Claudia Sarek. And I'm Kristen Hawley. And this is a three-part mini-series from So You Want to Run a Restaurant, where we're covering the top problems facing restaurants and how tech can help solve them. Today we're joined by Abhinav Kapoor, the co-founder and CEO of Bikki. Bikki is a CRM for restaurants that helps to power a digital hospitality experience by providing a system of records for all of the restaurant's guest data. The software does this by mapping a restaurant's guest's footprint across all of their channels, from point of sale to delivery to loyalty, helping you, the restaurant operator, to better understand the customer's behavior across all channels. So we're excited to have Abhinav on the show with us today to talk about data and the advice he has for restaurant operators looking to maximize their guest experience in order to grow their businesses. Hi, Abhinav. Welcome to the show. Hey, Claudia. Thanks for having me. Abhinav, we are so happy that you could join us to talk about data today. Um, And I want to start because... Customer data in restaurants is like this buzz term that has been flying around, especially during the pandemic. Um, It's overwhelming. I think sometimes uh, restaurateurs don't even understand exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about data. So as someone who runs a company that helps them capture the most useful data, um, can you just kind of talk through the sorts of data that, that you are finding the most interesting and useful for a restaurant right now? The, the easiest way to summarize it is just a customer's phone number or email address at a very high level from a contact standpoint, as well as mm-hmm. a record of every order that they've placed, uh, either that's online, delivery, loyalty, or in-store. Um, and the reason why I say like the phone number, email address is the most important thing is we saw this during the pandemic, right? Where, you know, I started this business four years ago. And in the beginning, I was like, customer data. And everybody was like, that eh, doesn't seem that important. Help me do more deliveries because at the time, you know, even in New York City, delivery was only 20% of a restaurant's total business. And then you fast forward to, you know, March 2020, you have shelter in place orders and everybody's business is 100% digital slash off-premise overnight. Uh, with 90% of that business typically controlled by a third-party delivery platform like Grubhub, DoorDash, Uber Eats. And so you're in this environment where the restaurant has lost any semblance of control or relationship with uh, with the guest period. And the only way that they could actually contact guests or engage guests and continue serving and building relationships with guests in that shelter in place environment is by having that customer data, right? At least with a phone number, you can, you know, either text a customer if they've opted into text communication or literally put the phone number into Facebook and target them that way and say, we're still here. We're still open. Please come back with an email address. It's even more valuable because you have a direct line to that guest inbox and can say, you know, we're still open. Here's what we're serving. Here's what days we're open. Here's how we're enhancing our health and safety standards to serve you safely during this unprecedented time. But those two pieces in particular, the phone number and the email address are what we at Vicky focus on to de-anonymize the customer. So they're not just Mm -hmm. a credit card swipe with an order record. Um, And to really, we use that as really the foundation for building a record of a customer. Yeah. So it sounds like the pandemic shifted the ways uh, and carry out on delivery in particular that, you know, sparked by the pandemic changed the way that that restaurant operators collected the data. But did you find that it was changing the way that they were using the data? Were they evolving with that? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, Let me, well, I'll I'll go back to what you said about collecting data first. And I think this is the critical thing about our company and our business and really 
you know, every business that is focused on sort of e-commerce or restaurants. In terms of collecting data, the goal with collecting data is to make it so easy that the restaurant doesn't have to actually do anything to collect the data. To give you a perfect example, when a guest places a reservation on Resier Open Table, that data is in the restaurant's reservation system. They're just not doing anything with it. When a guest swipes their credit card and asks for a receipt and they enter an email address or phone number, that data is in their point of sale system. They're just not doing anything with it. When they place an online order, it's the same thing. The data is sitting there. They're not doing anything with it. So really, you know, our philosophy is that restaurants have been collecting data for years, right? Like they've ever since online ordering has been around, you know, Noah started Olo in 2015, 24, or sorry, uh, 2004, 2005. So you're looking at 15 years at which many of his customers have been collecting data. Our philosophy is that restaurants just haven't been doing anything with it. So I think what's really shifted is, and this is the second part of your question, what's really changed is that not the data collection piece, but the way in which the restaurants are using that data. Because again, you go back to my first answer, the way they, they weren't using that data at all. And then they finally were like, nobody is coming in store. The core of my business just does not exist because we literally cannot serve customers safely in store. And so the only way we can use data is to start sending emails. Or the only way we can engage our guests is to start sending emails. The only way we can attract or promote our delivery offering is to start launching Facebook ads or Instagram ads. Um, and so I think what you're looking at now, and even as the world reemerges and the quote unquote pandemic ends or is starting to end, hopefully, um, you, you go back to this hybrid environment now where restaurants are starting to understand that digital marketing is important and that um, it should couple, you know, the marketing that they get from the in-store experience as well. Cool. So when you, it's, it's funny because, you know, the customer data can be this like overwhelming, all-encompassing thing, right? But you're talking about literally like the most basic information about the people that buy food mm-hmm. from restaurants, right? Um, and just like a, a smart way to engage them and keep record of them. Um, has has that changed or has your own thinking about that changed as Bicky's been around for a while, as restaurants are getting a little bit more savvy? Um, you said you don't like to do offers. I'm super curious about, you know, where that where that comes from. I think the whole inspiration for this business is my mother-in-law and her restaurant and watching her, you know, I haven't watched her over 20 years. I've only been fortunate enough to watch her over the last 10 since I've been part of her family. But, you know, every time I go in the restaurant, she knows her guest names, her faces, what they eat, what they drink. Um, she is the epitome of what a restaurant operator can and should be, which is just cultivating a great experience, making sure people remember why they choose to spend their time and money with her establishment, whether that's in store or through delivery. And a lot of what I think about is when someone walks in store, she's not like, by the way, here's a check and 10 bucks off to come back one more time. She's not worried about that. She's not thinking about that. All she cares about is, was the food good? Was the experience good? Could we have done something better? I hope that you'll come back and you know become a regular and spend more time with us. And when I think about leveraging customer data as it pertains to offers, it's like you can either think of you can either think the, the term is customer relationship. And you can either think of guests as customers where all you care about is discounting to them and getting them in the door and treating them like a transaction or you could focus on the relationship piece, right? And my mother-in-law has always chosen to focus on the relationship piece. And so what I say to our customers is, you need to be building relationships with your guests 
And the data is just there to help you do that in a more targeted manner. More specifically, it's like when you talk to a new guest, when someone places an order for the first time, you're not saying here's, you shouldn't be saying here's five bucks off to come back again. What you should be saying is like, thanks for being here. I'm the chef. I'm the operator. Here's who we are. Here are our values. Here's what we stand for. Here are five other menu items that our best customers love. And you are really educating that guest on why they should be a part of your brand for the long term. So it sounds like what you're saying to me is you're using data and you, you're promoting that as a way to personalize the guest experience in general. So it's all that attention to detail. And I guess my question is, have you seen, you know, and you talked about relationships and folks walking in the door and you say, oh, hey, I want to give you, this is what our top five customers like like to eat. Have you, have you seen any other examples like that that restaurant operators can utilize um, on how to best utilize the data in order to create that more personalized experience? Yeah. Yeah. Uh- I think the easiest thing to start with is that example I just gave where it's like a welcome flow. Like we have a templated five email drip sequence that we give to all of our customers. And we say, we're just going to make this automatic for you. Anytime a new guest visits in-store delivery, regardless of where they come from, we're going to put them into this drip campaign that just educates them on your brand. And it's like, it's very, it's like day one message from the founder. Day two is a highlighting a menu item. Or they, you know, the third email is uh, talking about your values and what you stand for, right? And so it's a very simple three to five email sequence that every new customer goes through after their first order. And from an impact standpoint, right, like we've seen customers increase their frequency by 50% in the first 60 days. Um, oh, wow. Meaning, you know, yeah. So like only 15% of customers were ever coming back in the first 60 days after their first order. That's jumping to 30%. Right. We have customers who the average time to a second order was 40 days and it's come down to 20 days since introducing this email campaign. Uh, speaking of, is there a specific type of restaurant that you feel this approach works better at? Can this scale to something like a sweet green or even like a sweet green light, you know, five locations in one city or something? Um, mm-hmm. Or is this better suited to like a small business where you want that like personal um, uh-uh. touch? I think, I mean, we have customers who are one location, we have customers that are 40 locations. Um, and your strategy is the same. Yeah, it's the same. The, dif- mm-hmm. the Honestly, the, the difference is how frequently do you email them? Because I'll give you an example. We have a, we have a, you know, a more upscale restaurant where the average check size is $80. You're not going to be emailing that, you know, the guest, a new guest every three days because they're not going to come in twice a week. Yeah, right? that you makes want sense. Them coming, you want them coming maybe once or twice a month, so you'll space the emails seven days apart or 10 days apart, and you'll then educate them about your brand over time because the goal is ultimately to, again, build that relationship with them and make them feel comfortable coming back and having another experience. For our fast casual customers, you know, the emails in the strip sequence are spaced three days apart right? because they're, it's just a naturally you know, $20 average check size, higher typical frequency. Um, so there are definitely nuances, but the broader strategy is just like build an email campaign that tells new guests about who you are and what you do and why you do it. Um, and then again, there are nuances, but that is dependent on who you are as a brand and how frequently you actually want to be engaging with guests as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. I guess that kind of bears the question of what happens when it goes to a far in the other extreme? Like, is there too much data-driven efforts that go too far and end up turning the customer off? Like, where do you find the right balance there? Yeah, there's some, yeah, we have some customers that they experiment a lot 
and you know it's caused their unsubscribe rate to go up but yeah for them for them you know you're like you're starting from you're starting from zero a lot of times and so i think you know the answer is we haven't really reach that upper limit. Now, I think if you're, if you're emailing people every day, that's excessive and a problem. Um, but if you look at just this drip campaign, this welcome email drip campaign, for example, it's five emails spread over 30 to 50 days. Um, that's, I mean, that's not a lot, you know, to be no. honest, uh, no. especially in the context of how many emails we all end up getting anyway. Um, right. And even from even from the brand standpoint, it's even if a guest doesn't open it, you just want to be top of mind, and you want to have a subject line that says like, "Hey, did you know that we were founded in 1935, like during the Great Depression?" And we have a customer that does that, you know, and they talk about their roots and their found. And the problem, the point is, is that that resonates with more guests than doesn't, um, especially if you're not doing anything today. Um, mm -hmm. but we certainly like, you know, we have, we have customers who are like, oh, I want to do this flow and that flow. And, and we're like, let's step back and pair back a little bit and just focus on the major touch points to start. So, cause you want to leave space for actually them coming in and remembering you for you, for the experience they had with you and not the frequency of communication. So. Yeah. So what's the, what's the end metric that you're going for? Is it like revenue, like bottom line straight up, or is it like repeat visits or? Yeah, it depends on the campaign, but like for this welcome flow, it's all about retention. Like, what percentage come back for a second visit, and you know, in this by the end of the flow. Um, so we look at like number of re number of visits within sixty days for a lapsed flow. You know, where someone hasn't been back in sixty or ninety days, we look at revenue because it's binary. They were coming and then they stopped coming back. Um, you know, for most emails, for most of the campaigns, you know, we have the beauty of having customer data that is across all these channels is, you know, we have, we have customers who set up email automations where you started your journey on Grubhub, you switched to the restaurant's native online ordering platform, and then you switch back to Grubhub and you can send an email automation that says, Hey, like, why did you go to a third party when you've already ordered direct from us? Right. And so what we, the, in that case, the metric we track is how many guests actually place an order on the direct ordering platform, right? How many guests had their next order on the direct ordering platform? And then what's the revenue associated with that? I have to say that kind of, that kind of public shaming would get me. Well, it's not, I mean, you don't have to shame, yeah, it, it, you know, right? I always frame it in shaming, in a shaming context, but trust me, our, our, our customers always frame it a lot nicer. And they're like, Hey, I'm you, like, sure. you, like, you know, ordering direct really helps us out. Like something like that. But you're not like, what are <laughs> yeah. you doing? What's right. wrong with you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you know better by now? It's, it's been 18 crazy. months, guys. Right. I mean, right. I do yeah. what would get me is if they, if they put down, like, did you know how much money we had to spend with Grubhub right. and DoorDash <laughs> to ship that item to you? or to know, deliver that item to you and you could have gotten it from us from here i mean i would have paid attention for sure right <laughs> I, I, it's like even that is such a funny thing like we talk about kind of like customer data and this is you know we, i just came back from the food on demand conference in vegas and it's funny the stuff they're talking about now at this conference is the same stuff they talked about when i went to the conference in chicago in april 2019 was just like third parties mm. don't give us data we don't know how to win back control of the customer and 
which just means that I've done a bad job of actually like marketing our mission and our business and our capabilities, but we'll put that aside. <laughs> we'll put that I mean, aside. But... That's my role as a journalist too. So they must not be reading my stuff. Right. Uh... Their stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just like, you know, that, that's a, that's an ongoing struggle. And you know, what I say to our customers is like third party, everything competes on an efficiency to experience spectrum, right? All the third mm-hmm. parties compete on efficiency. They're trying to, what I always say is they're trying to optimize click to mouth. That's all they care about is how many, as little taps as possible to get you food that you can eat where restaurants can win is experience. And so in terms of like actually keeping customers loyal to your first party platform, you can do things that improve the guest experience. That's exclusive menu items, a loyalty program, better pricing, just there are different vectors that a restaurant can pull or play on so that. Uh, their native online ordering is more attractive than third party. And sometimes the email automation that I talked about helps as well, even if there is a bit of shaming involved to it. So, <laughs> Can we talk about loyalty and rewards just quickly? Um, because mm-hmm. I think that's a super hot topic. Uh, and I think that is that, you know, is that a big part of the campaigns that you're running? Are, are your restaurant clients uh, building, you know, robust loyalty programs? And yeah, how are they doing have, it? Yeah, it's interesting. It's... If I look, if I look at our customer base, right, it's split 50, 50 between, uh, fast, casual QSR and casual dining and all of the fast, casual QSR brands have a loyalty program by now, I think, uh, or at least considering it. And none of the casual dining brands are thinking about it. Um, and I think the, inter- again, the interesting thing there is like. For QSR Fast Casual, loyalty, the way it's been done, has been a few, has been like a frequent flyer program, right? One, you know, a point for every dollar spent, get 99, spend $99, get $9. And so, you know, I think the interesting thing is for QSR, they're starting to change what loyalty actually means to them. Meaning, like, if your rewards are undifferentiated and you're just like everybody else offering nine bucks for every $99 spent, you're probably not going to get people to download your app. I would argue that if you're less than 100 locations, you're probably not going to get people to download your app anyway. Uh, but that's a separate conversation. Um, but the casual <laughs> dining brand, the casual dining brands are not thinking about it uh, at all. And yeah. I think that's because, again, like the focus is much more rooted in experience and not as much in order ahead and efficiency, and and needing some sort of reward tied to a transaction. Um, but it is a very hot topic. Everything, everybody is. I always ask myself, and this is true in anything in life, what are you really trying to do? And I think a lot of operators out there that are thinking about loyalty and thinking about having a rewards program, if I ask them, what are you really trying to do? The answer always comes back to, I'm trying to have a direct relationship with my customers. And it just seems like the loyalty program is the best manifestation of that today. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. Again, like I said, like if you're a smaller brand, I think Loyalty apps are very difficult to set up, to market, to maintain. But, you know, that seems to be the direction that a lot of restaurants are heading in right now. What do you think about the third parties? Uh, They're rolling out products that they say give restaurants direct access to their customers and customer data. Is that just like a, yeah, sure, here you go. Like, we'll throw you this and see if you bite. Or is it, do you think maybe the tide is starting to shift a little bit? No, I think it's like a, we want to build, we want to be nice to merchants. So here's something that would work for merchants. Um, and we'll give it away for little to no cost, but where they make their money is, uh, 
where they make the money and I think where they'll continue to try to make their money is on the 20 to 30% fees that they collect from the marketplace orders. Um, you know, I look at products like, you know, DoorDash Storefront or Uber and, um, they are not doing anything there that hasn't already been done, right? Like Chow Now started in 2011, I think. Uh, Bento Box just got acquired doing this, you know, rolling with online ordering. Um, so many online profit boss, you know, like there's, there's, there's so many online ordering companies out there that are actually more aligned with restaurants than the third parties are. Um, mm-hmm. And so, like, I, you know, I look at it and it's just like, it's something, it's like necessary, but not sufficient almost. It's like something they have to do and they're doing it and that's great. And we know, you know, we have customers that actually use DoorDash Storefront or mm-hmm. another one of the third parties online ordering platforms. Um, but at the end of the day, like, that's not going to be the thing that differentiates their offering or actually brings them, uh, you know, the, the dramatic increases in market cap that they all want and need. So, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Um, so as someone who thinks about data a lot uh, and has worked in it for years, as you said, it's been out there. Um, I think about it too I, much. That's the problem. Uh, it, it clouds everything. Do you know, I just moved into a new apartment. Do you know how many furniture text message programs and email programs I've signed up for? Uh-oh. I'm like on West Elm, CB2, Floyd, All Modern. You got to. Joybird. You got to. Like, cause the- I know. I know. It's just cause all those I are about high is like, ticket items. I know. Yeah. And I'm just like, how are they going to use my data and how are they going to incentivize me to do a repeat purchase when I'm dropping a thousand dollars on a new place to mm-hmm. put my TV? And it's yeah. just like, you know, it's just like those. those are, so anyways, yes, I think way too much about data and I look at everybody else and now they're using data now. Well, so. so so yeah. So I've heard, you know, I've been asking like the in, uh, investors and you know, VC types, like, um, like what's next in restaurant technology? What are they excited about, right? And I've heard that, like, the market for just simple data analysis is kind of where it's at. And I think you've seen that with, like, the kinds of companies that are coming on, like, well-funded companies coming on. Um, it's, like, you know, wide open, full of promise. There's so much information, but restaurants need to understand how to analyze that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I'm just... I'm curious what you think about that when your basis is like such simple information and you're like, it's there, you just, it's like there for the taking, right? Like, is there going to be a market in the future for more advanced um, analysis or do restaurants need more advanced analysis or is it really just like, you know, go back to basics 101, like build your digital business based on the principles of hospitality and you'll, you'll do well. I, uh, I think the data analysis by itself is kind of BS. Because if you think about the typical, all right, let me frame it this way. It all depends on who, what restaurants you're talking about. Are you talking about, you know, went to? Are you talking about like, Cadova or PF Chang's and these groups, these enterprise brands that actually have like, full blown marketing teams and you know business intelligence teams that are actively thinking about like it is someone's job to sit behind a desk and look at charts and export the data and crunch numbers and Excel files. Because for them, yes, there is definitely opportunity to do more, better analytics and really give insight into who the customers are. If you're talking about the vast majority of restaurants, you have to make the data actionable. You can't just give them the data. I think that's why we focus so much time and effort on being like, here's the data we're collecting. 
here are three to five ways in which we know you can use it. And then here's the result. So you, you talked about, you know, the phone numbers, emails, email campaigns. They seem to be like very successful uh, from a business standpoint. This feels like very, this is like the 101, what to do with data. Like what's the yeah. 201? What, what is like after the simplicity of a, a text message or an email that gives you the restaurant story? What comes next? Yeah, the way I, it's funny, we're we're in this. We just raised uh, around the financing about six months ago, and um, so a lot of my time is focused on recruiting and building the team. And people always ask me like, "What's next?" or "What's your vision?" And I think for me, the way I think about this is like, restaurants have never had a customer level view of their data before, right? They've never been able to just say like, "This is John Smith. This is his phone number. This these are his in store orders, his online orders. He's in our loyalty program." Here's what his remaining wallet balance is. There's so many different attributes that are important. And there's a lot of ways in which we can leverage that data. I'll give you two quick ones. One is, you know, when my mother-in-law was starting her restaurant, she would literally walk around the neighborhood and she would look at other restaurants and say, what's on the menu? What's the price point? How busy are they on a Monday night? What kind of cuisine do they serve? And I can imagine a world in which, because we are often collecting zip code level data on customers, I can imagine a world where a restaurant thinks about opening their first, second, 10th, 100th location, types in a zip code, and automatically at that level can look at all the customers, anonymized, of course, all the customers in that area and all the restaurants in that area and understand, again, what's the price point, what's on the menu, what does retention look like, what does lifetime value look like, so that you as an operator can say, can start to make really intelligent decisions about how you build your business and where you choose to actually locate your storefronts or your delivery only kitchen if that's if that's what you want to do. That's a longer term thing. A shorter term thing we look at is how does the menu influence customer retention? By that what I mean is most restaurants they look at their pmix reports and they're like I'm selling a lot of fish tacos. This is great. But they have no idea if that fish taco is causing people to come back for a second visit or a lot of people buying the fish taco and never coming back. And so what one of the things we're working on now is like fixing our fixing how we structure our menu items so that we can take all the retention data and overlay with the menu. And so we can say here are things people try on their first visit such that they always come back and here are things that people try on their first visit such that they never come back. And really help restaurants start to think about like how do I change my menu around to actually optimize for repeat customers. Um, and I think that's one thing that we're working on that I'm really excited about. That's gonna be really interesting. Again, because everybody thinks about PMIX reports and it's in Toast or Square or whatever yeah. your POS is, but you don't really have an insight into, again, like how that's driving uh, loyalty or oh, repeat man. business. That's so. like, that could be an ego hit though. Like, <laughs> I thought those fish tacos were great, man. No, I mean, everyone well, everyone you know, tries them once and they're out of here. Right, exactly. Right? <laughs> and I mean, like, you know, like I, I was talking to one of my friends about this. He's a, he's like the head of analytics for a really big restaurant chain. And he was like, one of the things we look at is what do people order a lot, but not on their first visit? Because then what you found is a group of guests who have discovered your menu enough such that they found something in the middle that they really like and that they're always ordering, but they're always doing it on their second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth visit. Because those are the menu items that you don't mess with. Those are your cash cows, right? It's like once a guest becomes super loyal, right? These are the five things that they typically settle on that continuously drive repeat business. 
Mm, and fascinating metric. Sense, yeah, right. And so to give you a sense of like how this ties into the marketing stuff that we do, if a customer, if, if a menu item has high first visit and high retention, then that is a, then that you put a picture of that menu item on all your Facebook ads, right? Because then oh. you know that when you're trying to acquire a new customer, you want them to order that first because there's a high probability that they'll order it again. And then if you think about what people are not ordering on the first visit, but there's high retention, those are the pictures that you put in your email campaigns because you want them coming back and you know that these are the menu items that actually get people after their first visit and engender more loyalty. And so again, there's like super actionable ways that we can overlay menu data with retention data to really inform just how restaurants market to their guests and build relationships in turn. I'm sitting here thinking how much data Sweetgreen must have on me. Every time I order, I go through the app and they know that my favorite is the kale Caesar salad. And I mean, you think, I think about like their top, their top picks and everything. I mean, I get it though. That entire experience is digital and Sweetgreen has, you know, is like the master. It's like Starbucks, you know, they're, they're a master of all of this. And Wait till the robot starts in... making your kale Caesar I know, salad. I know. Well, I'll give you one right? more insight. And, and this, this, is, this is pure speculation on my part. I like, I don't have a yeah. line into this, but no, I, please. I have the Sweetgreen app and I downloaded it and I used to get their emails and I love their emails, but I never used to order because, uh, just, I don't, I'm not a healthy person. <laughs> I eat a lot of salads. <laughs> but I never, but I never really You're like Burger King has my data too, though. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, Domino's <laughs> yeah. is a lot of my, a lot of my data. But, um, but then they stopped emailing me. And I was like, I would go through my email inbox. I'm like, I haven't seen anything from Sweetgreen in a while. And then I met a friend for lunch at Sweetgreen like two months ago. And I started getting emails again. And I was like, that's really interesting. Now, again, I don't have a line into this, but the hypothesis is that they were sending me emails. They realized that after 180 days, let's say I did not place an order. And instead of just continuing to email me, they just moved me to the side and said, we're not going to email him. He's not an active customer. And then once I became an active customer again, they start emailing me again. And so like, that's a really smart, intuitive and relatively lightweight way in which you can use customer data to get back to that over communication point that you asked about earlier. That's a very simple way where you can say, he downloaded the app. He didn't really order after getting all the email communication. We would rather not email him continuously so that he unsubscribes. We'll just move him to the side. And then if he orders again, we'll bring him back into the list. That's a cool example. It feels very respectful, honestly. Yeah, I mean, yeah. and whenever I decide to be healthy, then, you know, I'm back in the mix, so. <laughs> That's okay. Domino's <laughs> has you covered until then. Don't Domino's worry. Domino's has me covered. But Domino's, they know. Domino's, I'm vegetarian and I still get pictures of pepperoni pizza in my emails. So I don't, I don't know what that's Is about. Is it impossible <laughs> pepperoni? Though? No, it's, no, it's just straight up. <laughs> the push notifications too. It's like it's pepperoni pizza all over my phone. But yeah. Okay. All right. So last question here. You talked about, you went to that, com- you know, the conference you just went to in, in Vegas. Um, what was the name of it again? The food on demand. Yeah. The food, food on demand, right. And you said that you mentioned that they were talking about a lot of the same stuff that they talked about the year prior. And I, and I found that too. A lot of the conversations, you know, I feel like they, they kind of revolve around the same space and especially during the pandemic with all the takeaway and delivery and, and all that. Um, so you go to that conference 10 years from now. What what are they talking about? <laughs> that's, a, it's a, that's another good question. Um, I think what we're going to be talking about is okay so i will i will crib a line that i used when i was uh, i was on a panel at the most recent one and 
there was one line that I used, which was restaurants will have to decide if they're going to be wholesalers or brands. And what that means is if you look at retail, right, and you look at Amazon and, and, you know, everything we've gone through over the last decade with them, if you were a brand, right, and you focus on experience and direct relationship with the customer and building a values-based business where people would opt into and, and decide to give you their money, you are fine. If you were a wholesaler, which is just like, tight margin, but you made money on volume because you sold on Amazon and Wayfair and all the marketplaces, you were fine. If you were in the middle, like Sears or JCPenney or Macy's or, you know, Kohl's, countless other retailers, you got destroyed. Because what happens is, you know, you have to figure out again, do you want the direct relationship with your customers in which you focus on preserving that and communicating with them and, and taking all the margin that comes from that? Or... Again, are you just going to rely on the distribution of the marketplaces and just focus on optimizing for transactions and you know making making a penny per, a penny per transaction, so to speak? Um, I think ten years from now, when we go to the food on demand conference, we're going to be talking about how there were a bunch of brands that we didn't that frankly just aren't around anymore because yeah. they they didn't make the choice. My my gut, unfortunately, says that it might very well be a lot of mom and pops. Um, because the bigger brands are going to be sophisticated enough to figure this out and figure out that, you know, their brands and their wholesalers or, and on the, on the wholesaler side, you have what you're starting to see now, which is a bunch of ghost kitchens, a bunch of virtual brands, which are totally fine with third party, with the margins of third party delivery, because they're adjusting their prices or they're spinning up five separate virtual brands and they're optimizing for low margin revenue. Um, I think you're going to have a lot of, I think everybody in between, and that's going to be a mix of mom and pops and mid-sized chains just aren't going to be around anymore um, as a result, because they're just not going to see it coming and not going to switch quickly enough, uh, which is, I mean, like at our company, we'll do everything we can to like make sure that doesn't happen and try to help as many as possible. Um, but unfortunately, it's just a byproduct of what happens like again with this type of disruption it's like if you're stuck in the middle you're just you're just going to get crushed so mhm <laughs> that's kind of depressing to end on. I know. It's like, I know. That's kind of depressing. Can we just, can you just give us, can you, so that, you know, the future could potentially be bleak for the kind of restaurants that Bicky is like, you know, most useful for, I would say now. Um, so, you know, what's the good news for, for small businesses? Like what, what should they do to make sure that they don't go obsolete in 10 years? Because, because, you know, people who love restaurants, that's what you think about, right? That's what yeah, you think yeah, about. Yeah, totally. Yeah, Where's the yeah. That's all. Well, the good news is, honestly, the good news is that restaurants have always been super experiential places and businesses. Um, and I actually think that's the silver lining is that restaurants are way more experiential than traditional retail businesses, right? Like, even now, I'll walk in, you know, if I walk into a Neiman Marcus or, or like a, you know, like a, like a Rolex store, like, it's not a real great, I mean, not that I've ever walked into a Rolex store. I'm just giving an example, but I don't, it doesn't strike <laughs> me as like the type of like really super cool, like, you know, retail experience that I actually want to have. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, I'm not there <laughs> for the experience of shopping. I'm there because I have in my mind that I want a watch and I'm going to go buy a watch. Um, You're there for the people watching. Come on. <laughs> I'm there to fulfill my, you know, the gossip girl 
fantasies that I have where I can sit on the Mets steps and pretend that like I belong. Yeah. But that's separate. Um, yeah. But so I guess the point Ooh, I'm trying sorry, to make. Sorry, we did go left yeah. turn. Uh, I, the point I'm trying to make, not very eloquently, is restaurants are way more experiential than traditional retail. Food is a very emotional thing. It, it, you know, like these types of local mom and pop restaurants deeply resonate with all of us, and we all care about them deeply, especially since the pandemic. And so. If I had advice for mom and pops, it's it would be like pivot hard into doing what really what you've always done, which is just providing a great, great guest experience. Um, and there'll be a place for you. I think I, I think when I say the middle, you're gonna get crushed. What I more so talk about is the indecision. It's just it's it's the act of just not deciding mm. whether you're gonna be super delivery and takeout oriented. And you're going to be focused on the at-home guest experience or if you're going to be an in-person experiential offering where like you want to be an end destination for a guest where they can celebrate their birthday or an anniversary or even just a nice quiet meal on a Tuesday night. Um, it's that middle, right? It's like you can't – I don't think you can play – You know, I don't think you can play both sides of it anymore because there's just too many options out there, especially with virtual brands, right? You can't be in a primary brick-and-mortar business – that's dabbling in delivery because there's going to be another virtual brand out there that's going to be imitating your food at maybe half the cost and they understand the margins and the delivery game and they're just going to make more money than you. And then you're going to be like, why is my business not growing? And so when I say like you're going to crush it if you're in the middle, what I mean by that specifically is restaurants have an edge because they're innately experiential businesses. It's just you got to figure out what experience you want to cater to, no pun intended. Um, I think that's the silver lining. It's just like make a decision and go all in on it as opposed to trying to play both sides of it. Um, and there'll be a path for you because the market is so big. And at the end of the day, not everybody needs to buy a new watch, but everybody does need to eat. So Very true. Very true. Well, that was great, Abhinav. Thank you so much for being kind of here. We I, will... I impressed myself with that. For what it, I was like, wow, that was a decent save. <laughs> We came back and made it decent. We so, did. Yeah. We did. I think, well, you know, I think that, I don't know, just my, my two cents here. I think that some of the local favorites and like they kind of have the support of the community. And I think I don't really need an email from them. I just like, I know they're there and like they've got such a, they've got such these deep ties. I mean, are they ever going to become these huge things? No, but I don't think they really want to be. Um, but I do, but I, but I do see your point on the, um, in that decisiveness. I mean, for example, like there's a on on Second Avenue in Manhattan, there's a place, there's an Italian place uh, across the street from a movie theater. And the reason I remember it is because whenever I go watch a movie there, I buy an eggplant parm and I sneak it into the theater. But that's a separate thing. <laughs> um, wait, 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 wait! You buy an eggplant parm and you sleep, you sneak it into a movie theater? Yeah. You got to eat. I'm not going to pay 20 bucks for popcorn. Like, come on. I'd rather pay 20 bucks and get an eggplant farm. But that's a, that's a separate thing. I'm learning so much about you. I'm not, but, I thought but, I knew you, but I don't know who you are anymore. But like, but like you know, pre-COVID, they were a sit-down Italian restaurant. You know, that's, that's what they did. They were a place where you go either before or after the movie to have a nice meal. And... They decided, like, this is the type of pivot I'm talking about where they are thriving now. They decided that, you know, foot traffic in New York is not going to be great for a while in their area specifically. And, you know, the only way they could serve customers would be delivery only. And so they basically scaled back the front of house to the point where now there's only three stools looking out the window where you can eat. Then they have the register and they turned everything else behind them into a massive kitchen space and they have 40 delivery people working for them. 
and they cover river to river, both all the way up to 59th Street, all the way down wow. to Houston. So it is a massive delivery area. And I remember talking with them, like, why did you do this? And they're like, we decided that we wanted to be a delivery-only business. We could serve more customers. The food still gets mm-hmm. them hot and fresh. It doesn't dilute the customer experience. Our reviews are great. And we're willing to pay the price of just operating on the marketplaces because we mark up our prices anyway on third party. And so we offset mm-hmm. the cost past the gas. We haven't really seen a bump in revenues. And so that's a great example of someone that was this sit-down experiential business. They had an opportunity to figure out which direction they wanted to go in. And they went hard into, again, that kind of wholesaler mentality. Um, mm-hmm. And it's working for them. And that's great. And so it's, again, going back to it's like just be in the middle. right? And then they're still there when I need to steal an eggplant parm. Well, or sneak an eggplant parm rather into the theater. So. Thank God for that. I mean, that's <laughs> that's critical. That's that's how I discovered yeah. this change in their business when I went back and I was like, yeah. everything's changed. <laughs> so. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Abhinav, for being on the show. We really appreciate it. It's been a great conversation today. And um, we will be looking towards the future of data here and seeing, um, I don't know, seeing what else unfolds. So, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure speaking with both of you. So. Thank you. Want to hear more listeners? Then you need to head to backofhouse.io, where you can find the latest on restaurant technology, food service industry news, a ton of free how-to guides, like how to digitize your space, how to work with food influencers, the latest on restaurant relief, and more interviews with industry experts. And while you're there, definitely remember to sign up for their free weekly newsletter, eat.news. Back of House has a team of food service industry writers and journalists who cut through the noise and give you the headlines that you really need to see each week. This is honestly one of the best weekly food service focused newsletters I've ever read or seen, and I wouldn't say that if it weren't true. Follow us on Twitter at BOH underscore podcast and at We Are Back of House on all other platforms.